This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at the PFL in Switzerland, and will be your host today. Today, we'll be talking to Morteza Mahmoudi about the new book, A Brief Guide to Academic Bullying. Targets of bullying are often the most vulnerable members of the scientific workforce. They may be low-paid graduate students or postdocs living in a foreign country, navigating a foreign language and culture, and whose immigration status is tied directly to their employment. The main focus of this book is to provide a brief guide regarding the cause and solution to academic bullying. Well, Marteza, welcome to the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So how has your week been? Has anything interesting happened recently? Uh, nothing specific. I mean, the, the exciting thing in, in my life is that uh, I'm planning to uh, visit my family after almost three years when I basically became a father in the United States. I couldn't basically travel back to my home country. So my parents basically get a chance to see my kids. So now after three years, it's uh, getting possible. So I'm very excited for that. Wow, that's amazing. Congratulations. Thank you. So can you tell us a bit more about yourself, about what you do? Yeah, uh, so I have, uh, I was born in uh, Tehran, uh, the capital city of Iran. Uh, So we were basically growing up in a weird situation at those days. Uh, I kind of vividly remember the fear that we basically felt as a child growing up in Iran, because it was during the war between uh, Iran and Iraq in the 1980s. So we always had the armed conflict uh, played out in the streets of uh, Tehran. And uh, it was very usual to basically uh, see a friend, neighbor, or loved one basically suffering from different types of um, traumatic injuries following a missile or like air uh, force attack. Uh, But the thing is that although the war was a very hard period, uh, when I think about those days, uh, I realized that uh, basically those kinds of experiences uh, put fuels in uh, anyone's motivational tank, at least for me, for the rest of basically my life to uh, basically... uh, decide to use my past as a driving force to basically help people to uh, feel less trauma 
in different ways in their life. So I did my uh, undergrad uh, studies um, in material science and engineering. Then I got my uh, master of science in biomedical engineering followed by PhD in nanoscience and nanotechnology. Uh, then I got several uh, postgraduate uh, training at different universities, basically to, because my field is uh, kind of uh, uh, kind of need like different uh, pieces of puzzle from different fields to uh, basically um, uh, enable me to put them together to end up with like a big solution in. Uh, like the current medical needs. So I got additional uh, trainings from University College Dublin, from APFL in Switzerland, um, um, University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign in uh, US, uh, Stanford the School of Medicine and Harvard University to basically uh, get enough training, like I mentioned to like uh, address uh, unmet clinical needs. And now we are working on developing uh, platforms to uh, basically help people um, to uh, have a better life after heart attack or having a, a chronic wound. So this is basically what I'm doing in terms of the scientific part of my work. And in addition, I also work in the field of um, academic harassment. Uh, and the reason I'm in this field is that I think one of the uh, major mission of academic science is to basically create a safe environment for everyone to uh, like uh, exchange ideas and uh, test hypotheses to basically help um, um, human beings to live better. So the environment should be safe and harassment free for every member of it. So that's why I'm also interested in working in that area. Uh, this is really a fascinating uh, journey. And uh, as you just described, you're quite an accomplished uh, scientist, but also you're uh, doing these uh, very humanitarian uh, um, um, sort of things within academic environment. And you're showing that it should not even be one or another, but you can combine it. So can you speak a little bit on how are you able to sort of have these two hats? Yeah, it's... Um, um... It's very interesting, like, uh, because of being, like, in different cultures, like I mentioned, uh, in different countries, different, like, uh, universities, um, I basically uh, witnessed several, like, cases of, like, uh, harassment in the, in the academic setting, while actually I was working in the... Uh, basically in my field to develop like new technologies and new solutions to the unmet uh, clinical needs. Um, and uh, the first basically thing that I wrote for Nature on academic harassment was a few uh, paragraph. It was a correspondence piece. 
And uh, unexpectedly, and I would say surprisingly, the kind of feedback that I've got from the scientific community was way above all of the feedbacks that I've got for <laughs> all of my scientific work in the field of nanomedicine and regenerative medicine combined. Okay. So I thought that as a scientist, my main mission is to like make a world a better place for everyone. It's the mission for every scientist and I guess for every human being. And I thought to myself that if this is the case, that the people basically in academic environments are suffering from harassment and it's so common that a few pieces at uh, Nature basically gets these kinds of feedback, this is, uh, this is something that I need to continue to work on in parallel with my uh, main research uh, like activities. So um, that's why I basically have a motivation in working in both of the fields. Uh, and I think they are interconnected. If the organizational health are kind of affected, I guess the scientific integrity and the goals of like uh, scientific missions uh, would not be achieved. So that's why I see the interdependency between these uh, uh, academic actions. So that makes me, I would say that basically motivates me to continue these, these both fields together. Your latest book is A Brief Guide to Academic Bullying. So can you tell us how did you come to writing it? Yeah, like I mentioned, uh, according to the, like the interviews that I had with many targets of academic harassment, and also through the organizations that uh, we basically founded, which is called the Academic Parity Movement, which we uh, try to basically help targets to uh, improve basically their situation, we uh, noticed about the lack of education in the field. So many people basically don't know what is academic bullying. Sometimes even a perpetrator mix up the concept of academic freedom and academic bullying. So that basically causes a bad behaviors that may hurt someone. So we just wanted to like be, uh, be informative for the community, increase awareness about the issue, make the definitions very clear. And that was a missing part in the, uh, in the academic area. Uh, we have many, uh, I would say, uh, literature around academic bullying, but the problem is that most of the literature comes from the social scientists, so the type of language that they use or the target audience of them are kind of different from the entire scientific community. So that was a great need in the in the academic science. So that's why we thought that it would be a good timing to write a piece 
that help people to better understand about like what is academic bullying, how they can cope with academic bullying if they are a target of academic bullying. And we can also share stories of the people that basically went through like academic harassment and used different tactics to uh, basically cope with the situation, either if it's fight, it's flight, or kind of tolerating the situations. We try to uh, basically shed more light on those situations. And those are, I think, the facts that are badly needed by the, by the targets of academic bullying. On a, pers- on a perpetrator perspective, we also thought that there's a great need to uh, have educational pieces, uh, such as the book that I wrote, um, that makes it very clear that what is academic freedom, what is okay in terms of performance or in terms of like the scientific collaborations or expectation, and what is not okay that may fall into the realm of academic uh, bowling. So uh, there was a, like a great need, like I mentioned, on like the side of targets, witness supporters, and even perpetrators. And uh, we just tried to fill the gap by writing this book. So let's delve into some of those topics that you cover in your book, and we can start with the very basics. So can you explain what is academic bullying? Yeah, so academic bullying has a wide, I would say, spectrum of actions, and it depends to the type of work that any uh, scientific may do and may have maybe like kind of culture specific. But in general, it has like if I want to put like some examples is to like ridiculing someone for their ideas or ganging up against someone for a variety of reasons or as a PI giving a bad and unfair recommendation to your group member for non-scientific reasons or uh, basically making like their uh, future career affected by unscientific actions. And it has different levels, like at institutional level, it may be kind of forcing targets to um, sign away their rights, their legal rights, their, uh, I would say, uh, intellectual property rights or forcing them to use code of silence or supporting like perpetrators for their actions for a variety of reasons that institutions may have to compromise. So any type of unscientific but bad behaviors and actions that may affect the scientific community and the health of the subordinates, in my point of view, would be considered as academic bullying. Um, the best, I would say, quote that I've ever uh, read in uh, my life, uh, at least, is from uh, uh, Viktor Frankl, 
which was a, a survivor of uh, Holocaust. Uh, he was a, a, a psychologist, so uh, he mentioned that, like if I correctly remember uh, his words, it was between stimulus and response, there's a space. And in that space is our power to choose our response. And in our response lies our growth and our freedom. So I would say whenever we can't basically control that particular space and act inappropriately in the scientific field, that would be considered as like uh, academic bullying. How does this concept relate to academic freedom? So the academic freedom, basically, I would say is is very clear, at least from my point of view. Academic freedom says that you can do any research, you can follow any hypothesis, you can basically draw any conclusions from your observations, you can um, kind of express your uh, impressions on a subject without any fear of retaliation. Uh, This is academic freedom. For example, when I think about my case, uh, like I mentioned, my main field of research is uh, nanomedicine and regenerative medicine. And that's why Michigan State University basically hired me in the first place. But uh, Michigan State University and my directors here basically do not uh, do not kind of uh, prevent me from researching academic bullying field. So I think that's a good example of like academic freedom. You can do whatever you think is good for the scientific community, draw conclusions and publish your findings uh, within the community or with the public. So this is, uh, like I mentioned, academic freedom. Um, Academic bullying, on the other hand, um, like I mentioned, has a clear uh, definition and uh, has clear actions. The problem sometimes that people basically um, confuse academic freedom and academic bullying um, is sometimes is for the culture of the universities. For example, we heard many times that the perpetrators basically say that I have been treated the same way or I have been trained the same way and I happen to be a very successful scientist. So their vision is that the type of behavior is okay in the case that they can guarantee like scientists or subordinates future career, whatever the behavior may be. And because it was so normal for them in that culture, they may not fully realize the side effects or adverse effects that those kinds of behavior uh, may basically do on targets. So they think that they are okay. So that's very easy to basically confuse those concepts based on your experiences. So that's why we think that increasing awareness about the issue is very uh, essential 
and it's uh, an unmet need in the scientific community. Now we have a very gray area when we ask many scientists about like what is academic bullying or what is uh, academic freedom. We see basically the gray area between their descriptions. But the thing is that I would say the surprising thing is that you barely can f- can't find someone that was not witness or target of academic bullying. Even when you talk with the very senior faculty members, they exactly know what bullying behaviors are. And they remember many cases in their own, uh, I would say time of education that went through like those kinds of behavior. So it seems that academic bullying was a taboo in the scientific community for many years for a variety of reasons. And no one basically uh, wanted or had a, like a power to clearly address that. So what do we know about the prevalence of bullying across all of the academic environments? Do we have any statistics? Yes, we have actually great statistics. For example, one of the um, biggest statistics, big survey, it was a kind of large survey that has been done I think it was done uh, by um, by several uh, leading figures in the field. They showed that like 40% of the people who uh, participated in the in that survey, uh, which were basically students from US, uh, Australia, and many other countries, they basically mentioned that they were targets of like academic bullying and harassment. We have also run a global survey on uh, academic bullying and we received like over 2000 responses and basically many of the people that participated in the in the uh, survey was uh, either a target or witness or even both of them in the realms of like academic bullying and there are many surveys out there the good thing about like these behaviors is that recently uh, we have more surveys, we have more involvement of the media, which basically shows how the prevalence of the academic bullying is high. Like one of the good example is the recent actions of like uh, White House about like Eric Lander on the allegations of uh, like bullying behaviors. and many scandals like at high rank universities that universities basically got finally um, uh, basically actions against perpetrators after decades of like doing those actions. But there are pretty much um, um, recent surveys that shows that the problem is very significant in our science uh, backyard and it's not uh, about the students. It's about the students, about uh, scholars, postdocs, uh, and even uh, junior faculties. So I would say wherever there's a power difference, uh, v- uh, surveys show that we have a problem of academic bullying. So what would be the causes of academic bullying? So one cause would be like in many settings, uh, the perpetrator or the PI have uh, like a great power over over subordinates, and uh, um, 
I would say the involvement of the credit and involvement of kind of financial uh, uh, privilege in some fields uh, can be one of the major uh, role or major driving force for having academic bullying behaviors. Imagine um, if you have, if you are talking about like um, IP that is generated in one lab and it may have a great commercialization value, sometimes um, some people may want to get all of the credit for that particular IP or that particular discovery because of the financial thing, because of the like the scientific critics and things like that. And, and the, that basically caused the, caused the bullying behaviors in the first place. So I would say the conflicts over authorship, the conflicts over intellectual property, um, the uh, unreasonable expectations for performance, for example, uh, if you're like, if you uh, talk with people at high rank universities, many of them think that it's normal to basically work day and night and in the weekends and, you know, and if uh, one of them basically don't do the same thing, then they may not uh, they may, may not meet the expectation of the of the PI, and that may cause may initiate the problem in the first place. So there are many reasons for that, uh, but I would say whenever the credit, whenever the uh, conflict arises, that's the main driving force of academic uh, bullying and harassment. One thing that is actually the big issue in our science backyard is the current uh, scientific measurements. And it's very interesting because measurements is supposed to like show you uh, about your like performance or your how you can improve basically uh, your scientific uh, research or plans to move forward. But now I would say, unfortunately, the measurements are being kind of scientific goals. And uh, many researchers basically use those measurements as a tool to show off or use it as a goal, which um, according to the scientific literature, in this case, these measures are not the good measures anymore. If you look at the, like how people react to H index, react to the several ranking, I would say, uh, organizations, and see that as a goal and wants to use others to reach that goal, is another reason for having like this issue in the science backyard. So this uh, talking about the individual uh, on the individual level of the perpetrator. And what what about mobbing? So how do we define that? So the mobbing, I would say, is kind of a, a sophisticated uh, version of academic bullying. Imagine that if a person student subordinate or um, like lab member, a scholar, they basically see a pattern of academic bullying and then they want to report it. 
So they reported to the university resources. Then we have like, uh, I mean, in some of the universities, if I, if if not most, they have some resources that the uh, target basically can can uh, share their experiences, like ombuds offices or uh, office of scientific integrity. They basically can share their uh, experiences. And when there's an investigation committee, they need to hear from like the perpetrator as well. And uh, as the basically process of investigation goes on, the person may not, the perpetrator may not basically do direct retaliation. Instead, they basically use power of others to force targets to either get back their claims, back off from their claims, or leave the institutions. And as perpetrators basically have power in the system, they have influence in like many other, I would say, faculties or students of their labs, they basically create an intolerable situation with the help of like other people in their communities to, to, I would say, influence the outcomes of the uh, investigation process. So that's, that's where the mobbing happens. So I would say mobbing in, in one sentence is ganging up against targets, but these ganging up have many reasons. One could be forcing a target to uh, use code of silence or to, uh, to basically uh, um, resign their position, move to another institution. And uh, one main reason is that many perpetrators that are in the power position, they don't want, uh, they don't want that a target makes a successful example. Because if there's a successful complaint examples, then other targets may be motivated to basically complain and the situation would be would be harder for many other perpetrators. So they all gang up together to avoid uh, formation of successful, I would say, uh, complaint from targets. So that are like kind of different versions and different aspects that uh, that academic mobbing may happen. So is academic bullying always uh, intentional? Can it be unintentional sometimes? Like I mentioned, it can be unintentional mm-hmm. because sometimes the person may not know that those kinds of behaviors basically affect targets or they may not know that this falls under like academic bullying. So I would say, yes, it can be intentional, non-intentional in many cases. And that's why we basically want to clear the boundaries and make sure that everyone has a clear understanding and what on what academic bullying's uh, actions are and what kind of what kind of side effects they can make on targets. Uh, 
For example, you may do something unintentional, but if you know that it may significantly affect the life of the target, then you may be more alert about doing those actions. So I would say through like the, uh, the interviews that I had with some of the perpetrators, um, some of them, not much of them, and about uh, not about the serious bullying actions, because sometimes when you gang up against someone or you force them to sign away their intellectual properties or authorship, that in that case, you can't be uh, like unintentional. You have the intention and you know that it's not ethical. But in some cases, maybe raising voices, ridiculing someone unintentionally, they, they may like be may fall into an unintentional actions for some cases and some cultures. And with a proper education, that can be solved. So I would say in some spectrum of academic bullying, it can be unintentional and uh, and with educational material either, like one of the main purpose of this book was, like I mentioned earlier, was to uh, increase the like awareness about like those unintentional behavior that may basically cause a person to suffer for many years in their life. And if, if it's a, like an unintentional um, uh, bullying behaviors in that contextual behavior, um, this awareness can basically help to prevent it for many people. And before we go into the effect that bullying can have, what is the significance of using terminology targets as opposed to say victims? Uh, I basically love the targets. Uh, uh, when I first started to write about the topic, because I I, uh, I personally basically uh, was a target of academic bullying and I witnessed many people in the, in different like uh, institutions that basically suffer from like academic bullying behavior. The word victim basically kind of brings some weakness with it, and it's not very pleasant for a person that experiencing uh, like that situation or academic bullying. But when you use target, it puts you in more, in more, I would say, uh, powerful position you realize that it's not your fault. You're just being targeted. So I personally think that it's a big difference when you call yourself or a person that is a target of academic bullying, a victim or a target. Mm, That's an excellent definition. So what kind of impacts can bullying have on a person? It has huge impact. I mean, we had a... um, at the academic parity movement, we have uh, like annual conferences on academic bullying, and we try basically to invite different stakeholders to share their views about like uh, the effects of academic bullying. And this year, we were fortunate to have uh, some expert people on uh, on field of like uh, bullying trauma, 
And we noticed that, uh, like from that talk and also from the huge uh, literature that we have on the topic, that the bullying behaviors based on their severity may cause like long-term side effects on targets. They can, um, can like suffer from uh, severe forms of like anxiety. They can go through post-trauma, uh, stress disorder, PTSD. They, they may have um, um, other uh, like issues later on in their life, but the most dangerous part of the side effect is that if you leave the targets unhealed, there is a risk that later on in their academic career, they can show bullying behavior as well. So, so if institutions basically leave targets unhealed, they can be future bullies factories. And it's, uh, it's, uh, it has a psychological, basically known psychological mechanism, uh, which is called identification with aggressor. And when I talked with some psychologists about that, they they put a nice example for me. They mentioned that uh, basically children of abusive parents, they try not to be abusive, but the odds that later on, when they get to the parenting position on doing the same thing to their kids, are high so it's very interesting unless they they find a way to to heal themselves so these are basically the side effects that targets may may uh, kind of feel and uh, and deal with but the main issue is that those side effects may also affect the people of the circle of influence of the targets for example the targets when they are in a stress, they may show, they basically, they, they may transfer their stress to like their families, their kids. And if you look at that in the, in the medical context, in the healthcare communities, when a lead physicians basically burn out or doing the bullying behaviors, the residents, there are pretty much uh, solid literature around that, that the um, residents or other like medical doctors, they are at the risk of making wrong medical decisions. So academic bullying and harassment in medical, in healthcare, like environment may also affect patients' health as well. So I would say we can divide it into two different categories. The basically side effects to the targets which may be for may last for according to a science paper may last for even 40 years after incidents of like bullying behaviors and the other category is that based on your profession other people may also get affected by those side effects so it's pretty serious and how come common is this code of silence around this issue that's unfortunately currently is high. According to our survey from like 2000, over 2000 individuals, uh, almost, and, and the survey was global. Unfortunately, over 70% of the par participants mentioned that they use code of silence. 
and the major reason was the fear of retaliation and uh, it was higher for in- international students because uh, because the power of perpetrators over them are much higher than a domestic like uh, uh, scientist because they have like a cultural language barrier they depend on the paycheck monthly paycheck and uh, they also depend on their visa so over 70% of all participants use the code of silence because of the fear of retaliation. And even in those that basically uh, did not use code of silence and complained to the universities, less than 8% find the uh, investigation process and basically the settlement that they received as uh, fair and unbiased. So there are many reasons for using code of silence. Like I mentioned, the main reason, fear of retaliation. The other reason is that uh, all of the investigations that are being done by by universities, they remain kind of confidential. And the perpetrators, uh, based on the mobbing and the influence that they may have, uh, basically the outcomes may not be fair. And on top of the interest of perpetrators, the institutions have like something on a stake, like their reputation, um, the lack of kind of funding that they uh, may provide to the targets to heal them or to transfer their lab or to basically solve the problem. So all of these issues uh, are against targets and force them to use the code of silence. So what solutions do you see to this problem? So the solutions that we see, and I actually believe uh, about it, is involvement of all stakeholders. For example, uh, many of the perpetrators are being protected by universities because they bring huge funding. Uh, to the universities. So if funding agencies demand anti-bullying records of PIs when they apply for funding, then they can have a major contribution to to diminishing academic bullying because then universities have little reasons to compromise or, or to tolerate like bullies at the first place. Or if decision makers on university ranking basically comes to the comes to the equation and consider anti-bullying as a factor in ranking universities, again, universities have more motivation to to kind of uh, um, to kind of their response to bullying behaviors in their, in their environment. So we need contribution of everyone, different stakeholders, because different stakeholders can affect each other. And through interdependence actions, this problem can be solved. I mean, the outcomes of the National Academy of Science, Engineering, and Medicine in the U.S., on the sexual harassment was very disappointing and basically clearly shows the lack of interdependent actions. They showed that 
despite of having huge legal actions and training system about sexual harassment, there's little evidence that show that actually uh, incidences of sexual harassment uh, got significantly decreased in the United States in the academic setting. So it's very sad because we have everything in place. But what we don't have, I guess, is, uh, I should say, I believe, is the lack of interdependent action between like legal authorities, institutions, media, funding agencies, and uh, like uh, decision makers and gate holders. So I believe that the only, uh, the only, I would say, timely and effective uh, solution to academic bullying is to involve all the stakeholders and uh, demand transparency. And demanding transparency is very important. Um, for example, recent scandals of academic bullying and sexual harassment uh, from high-ranked universities were very frustrating for the scientific community because they showed that there were many cases that they do harassment, various type of types of harassments actually for decades, and they had hundreds of targets. Nothing happened to them. Most of the the targets left the institution. And after like 20 years, the university finally took action when the person was very close to retirement. So those examples are, I would say, stink to our academic environment because it sends two signals to perpetrators and targets. The signal to perpetrators is that they are being protected by universities no matter what they do. And the signal for targets is that nothing happens to the perpetrators. And there are some hidden parameters here. I mean, we have a statement from the university. We have some statements from the current and past targets that shows basically that institutions ignored the allegations for many years. But there are many hidden parameters like the members of the investigation committee. They should be accountable for their actions. They basically did not make proper actions for decades. And the scientific community needs to get their statement, needs to make them more accountable for their decisions. So when I say basically involvement of all stakeholders, I mean involvement and accountability. So this is basically the, the, uh, the solution I'm very confident about that can put an end on different types of academic harassment. So now then thinking about the bigger picture, are you hopeful that we would be able to bring together all of these stakeholders, even thinking maybe bringing the outside help for, from the independent agencies to investigate these, uh, for example, allegations within the university? Yes, that's actually what we are doing right now with different publications, with different conferences. At the Academic Parity Movement, which is a nonprofit organization that we basically established in 2019, our main goal is to basically make a 
safe environment that all of these stakeholders can basically share their perspective and look for strategies that they can work together. For example, in our March um, uh, annual conference on academic uh, bowling, we, we were able to bring like uh, people from national U.S. National Institute of Health uh, from NIH. Uh, we got their perspective on what is their expectations from the universities, what are they doing in terms of making more healthy organization, how they basically uh, get funding from perpetrators, and uh, they basically try to pass the harassers. So uh, that was very interesting perspective. We also got journal editors because they are a great source on uh, improving education and awareness about the academic uh, bullying. So we were sucks. We were uh, basically um, we were so lucky to have like uh, editors at Nature Human Behavior, Analytical Chemistry, the Lancet Clinical Medicine. They basically shared their views from the editorial standpoint that how they can contribute. And I was very happy to hear that in like the April issue, Nature Human Behavior basically published an editorial about like ending harassment in academic environment. So, so we are basically making a platform that these stakeholders come together, talk to each other and also talk to community. And when community knows about those things, they can uh, basically expect from the authorities that they are accountable for these actions in scientific, the scientific realm. For example, if patients know that their health are being affected by bullying behavior, definitely they would join to the uh, global request about more transparency on academic bullying and and efforts that can make organization and healthcare systems more, uh, more I would say, healthy and bullying free so they can get the best possible medical helps. So um, yes, these are basically the grounds that we are trying to make. And many people actually are attending the movement to basically facilitate the successful uh, translation of this platform as a safe place for all stakeholders to come together and talk together and make uh, interdependent actions against academic harassment. And what discoveries in your research for your book, A Brief Guide to Academic Bullying, surprised you the most? Um, yeah, the, the surprising part was how, how the targets basically... Uh, tries to tolerate the situation based on based on the current uh, academic pressure that they feel like i mentioned based on the survey that we have and by the way i invited many expert people to write about like uh, target stories so in two chapters of the book I uh, invited Professor Sherry Moss from Wake Forest University. So she she has been working in the abusive uh, behaviors for, I don't know, maybe 30 years to write 
selected stories of targets about what they are going through, how their life and academic career has been affected by academic bullying. Um, in other sections, I invited other people to write about what to expect when you complain, because the system seems to encourage you to speak up, but when you speak up, you basically experience different different environment and different actions, such as mobbing, such as even if you get your allegations validated, then the universities basically don't know how to support you, how they can basically disrupt the dependency that you have to the perpetrators. So one chapter is dedicated to, to inform people that when you speak up, try to understand what are the actions against you and how you can basically um, put your arms up to be ready for such like uh, actions and uh, hurdles during the uh, during the investigation process we also uh, had an expert talking about the issue that even albert Albert Einstein was a target of academic bullying. I mean, when he when he published his theories, there were like uh, hundred people that ganged up against him and wrote a book in 1931 about his theories. And his response was that if I if I were wrong, then one person should have been enough. Why hundred people? So. The problem is there for like, uh, I don't know, uh, a century. So we basically tried in the book that convey that this problem has not been solved, although we have individual actions or the actions by some stakeholders and the need for like having, having uh, like I mentioned earlier, um, interdependent actions by all stakeholders. But what struck me most was like reading about the target stories and how the targets based on the hard situations that they have, it could be because of their future career, fear of retaliation, uh, like losing their visa, uh, like uh, financial dependencies, they try to tolerate the situation. And the scientific community ignored the long-term cost of this, uh, like use of code of silence. Well, this has been a truly insightful discussion. So, can you tell us what are you currently working on, and what will be your next project? Yeah, now uh, at the Academic Parity Movement, we basically uh, we think that we had like enough publications and uh, like. Uh, book like this one, the a Brief Guide to Academic Bowling to increase awareness. And now we need to basically empower targets. So in this field, I'm uh, focusing on like fundraising for academic parity movement to basically help some targets that needs uh, kind of urgent help. So we can basically, uh, with the consultation with our like advisors at the academic parity movement, we can select targets that are most vulnerable uh, based on the bullying situations that they are 
basically experiencing with, and we try to basically help them as a midterm goal of the academic parity movement. And we are thinking like in the next four or five years, we can develop a very clear guidelines Actually, it should be like discipline-specific guidelines for universities and other stakeholders to follow to finally diminish uh, academic harassment and bullying in our science backyard. And where can our listeners find more information about your work, your book, and maybe also how to get involved? Yeah, they can easily uh, like Google the title of academic bullying get all the information about the publications, about the books that are out there. Um, They can involve by increasing awareness about the issue. They can also help supporters of uh, like academic academic bullying and harassment. There are many, uh, I would say organizations and uh, supporters out there. They range from like trauma experts, all the way to nonprofit uh, organizations like the academic parity movement. So they can volunteer in increasing awareness. They can basically make financial help that we can use to empower like uh, targets. So I would say they are there are endless opportunities to join the movement and help the, the I would say, next generation to be in more safe, and healthy organizations. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. Thanks for having me.